0: Everything you wanted to know about analyzing a bank stock, you're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Copenheffer. Right here is David Hansen. Of course, we don't care about you, though. Over here is our special guest, Anand Chakavelu. Anand, you wrote a great article on fool.com about analyzing a bank stock. We'll get to that, but not quite yet. First, Justin Bieber. What do you do Accused of attempted robbery. <laughs> Another, another, I don't know, nail in the Justin Bieber coffin, you might say. But look, Mm-mm. if the Justin Bieber brand was a stock right now, are you buying
1: or selling on uh, it? Depends what it's priced at, but it's probably at a high in, in these late... You think it's at a high right now? I feel like the brand has been taking a beating. It's not a
2: nail in the coffin. This is like another flower yeah. blooming. You really this is a good thing. Yeah. Oh, you think he's the going attempted places. robbery is a good yeah. thing for him? He's building a bad boy character. He's going to be in movies, and it's going to be great. Have you, have
0: you ever seen Justin Bieber? I don't think, no matter how many attempted robberies he does, I don't think he'll ever have a bad boy he's character. He's a big, big, strong guy.
1: But really, he's going to be better at 40 than he is today? See, I like to buy my Biebers pre-YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> buy a basket of them. Well, yeah, <laughs> diversify. D- diversify. It's like a VC Bieber approach. Exactly. All right, on
0: that note, let's get to the first headline of the day. First headline comes from CNN Money, and the headline is PIMCO sees another $30 billion drain away. PIMCO has continued to see funds flow out of its, its bond funds, uh, m- even more so after Mohamed El-Aryan... Left, uh, left the company. Bill Gross still there. Bill Gross, founder of Pimco. On and, is this a in your in your eyes is this a issue of Pimco or is it just who wants to own a bond fund right now?
1: Well, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, Pimco. I, I guess it's partially their success, right? Um, and then when you have key man risk like you do with Bill Gross, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, all your eggs are kind of in in, in a basket. Yep. But but yeah, again, like you said you know bonds I haven't well, seen the latest funds who wants flow, to be but, a bond fund flow but you know overall but <laughs> right right so you've got that issue too but yeah. but bigger picture you know longer term across cycles i mean it's hard when you're on top to, to stay on top especially when you rely on someone who doesn't play that well with others it seems unless you're drake Hanson?
2: <laughs> i think it's probably a bond problem more so than a gross problem a nasty problem it's a nice narrative because he's such a unique character he gets on does his little podcasts, his little monthly things he has some interesting similes and analogies Uh, so it's a good story to build it around that it's him but i think it's really just more of a bond thing it's they still have 1.5 trillion dollars in bonds there so 30 billion kind of a lot but put it in perspective yeah i'm going with bond thing okay Second
0: headline. <laughs> Wait, are we keeping score? Yep, I, I, won, I won that round. Second headline, Watt's new plan leaves Fannie's and Freddie's investors out. So we've got Mel Watt stepping in with, with his plan, his view of where Fannie, Ma- uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are going. And the the plan initially excited the investors. And actually, the the stocks are up today, so it seems like they're still pretty cheered about it because he tweaked the language a little bit which made it sound like there's going to be less of a winding down of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and more of a maintaining to prop up the, stock, uh, prop up the housing market, mm-hmm. for lack of a better way to put it. However, uh, John Carney over at Wall Street Journal is saying, yeah, they're going to keep him around, but... Hanson?
2: He didn't say anything about the shareholders <laughs> right, in exactly. the speech. It's, yeah, this is very different from what Ed DeMarco, the director of the FHFA before Mel Watt was saying he was all for winding them down, let's get rid of these things. They failed before, we're winding them down. Now Mel Watt's stepping in and saying, hey, maybe that's not the job of the FHFA. We're going to just run these things for the housing market and let Congress deal with winding them down. So maybe that's why people are excited, because they know, as we've talked about, it's going to be so hard for Congress to do anything here, to get anything passed. So maybe they're just saying Mel Watt wants to keep Fannie and Freddie deep in the housing market. Status quo leaves us in the picture, so... Maybe that's okay. Uh, for me, it doesn't really change anything, though.
0: and do the stocks, the common stocks of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, hold any interest for you?
1: Uh, personally, they're in my too-hard bucket, mm-hmm. just because it feels more like a regulatory call than a stock call. And, eh. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. That's, that is a fair answer. And
0: on that note, third headline. Headline is getting fed. Lunch with Ben Bernanke auctioned for $70,500. This, this was a charity auction. That, of course, was the price for lunch with Ben Bernanke. Uh, lunch with, uh, with Tim Geithner, former Treasury Secretary, went for a bargain $50,000. Of course, in the past, lunches with Warren Buffett have gone for as much as a million dollars. I think more than a million dollars in some cases. That's insane. Anand, if you were to pay for a charity lunch with, with some...
1: Investing or business luminary, who'd you go with, and how much do you think you'd have to pay? Well, I did some research for this, okay. and I talked to some Wall Street guys, and they said you could eat Tim Geithner's lunch for free, <laughs> apparently. But right, nice. uh, neither here nor there. All right, investing luminary. Day. I mean, of course you'd you'd want to do Buffett, of course. I mean, but um, would you pay you a million know, dollars? No, well, I don't. I don't <laughs> have the money to, to, to do you that. Don't need that. <laughs> you know, yeah, not but, in disposable yeah. liquid. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. You know. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of a deeper tracks person that would be fantastic I mean, I, I got the chance one time when Michael Lewis came to the office Ooh. That was, to me, that was the greatest person who's come into the office that I, for yeah. me Just as, you know, someone who enjoys writing and, and it's a, a hero Sat next to him and, and the, you know, there was a, sure. you know, a dozen of us But got to talk to him a bit and, So for me, that, that's... One-on-one lunch with Michael Lewis, how much did you pay? Uh, at least ten dollars. I'd, I'd cover his <laughs> Chipotle. I <laughs> try to charge it through too. <laughs> Hanson, uh, I don't know.
2: You're putting me on the spot. Of course, that's what the show's all about. Does that have to be investing or just business? Like you're whatever? trying to look at my answer. No, I'm not gonna stop. You're probably a boring one. I'll go. I'll go, with <laughs> I'll go with Zuckerberg. I think it's his birthday this week or something. Maybe he'll take me out for his birthday. It's I cool. mean, the guy's turning 30 years old. He's got an amazing vision for the future. I'd go with Zuckerberg. How much would you pay? Honestly. I'd pay $200. You'd pay $200 to have lunch. Okay.
0: Uh, mine are not boring. They're Tom Gaynor, the CIO of Markel. <laughs>
2: that would be
0: fantastic. Look, Tom Gaynor is, is the, war, the Warren Buffett that we're going to be talking about 20 years from now. 20 years from now, people are going to be talking about this guy the way they talk about Warren Buffett. Manish Pabrai, who is a little-known, I, I think mostly little-known, uh, Except, out, except within value investing circles. Uh, he runs, runs a hedge fund. Very sharp guy. Got a great Buffett-esque kind of view towards what he's investing in. I think it would be cool to have lunch with him as well. Uh, as a value investor myself, I'd keep it to around $500. Then hmm. pay $500. Taco Bell? <laughs> a whole lot of Taco breakfast. Bell. We would, we, would have, we would have fajitas like you don't even know.
1: That's good. Mm-hmm. All right. well, I, let me add to my answer, yes. Tim Cook, I think would be really interesting if we 're talking about folks, and I would pay a share of Apple, whatever the market price is Ooh. like like lobster market interesting. price interesting <laughs> you 'd be getting a so really, currently like almost six hundred bucks right now you'd get
0: a serious value deal on that if he took you up on that because I think lunch with Tim Cook has gone for six hundred thousand dollars
1: well yeah, I get a <laughs> discount <laughs> you get a discount okay
0: a hundred x discount right. all right, going on to the focus for today we 've got you here in the studio on and. Uh, you've got this article out on fool.com. Uh, all the WTMIRs should read this article. It's, it was really a, a good read. Why don't you walk us through some of the high points of your article, which was basically breaking down the, the steps that you take to
1: evaluate a bank stock. Sure. I've got my cheat sheet here so I don't forget. But basically, you know, banking's very complex, right? Uh, and you can kind of get lost in the weeds. Um, you know, every every little metric, you can say, oh, well, what, what's its – yeah, I can't even think tier, of a... Tier 1 thank you. leverage ratio. Tier 1.5 ratio yeah. to, to tier 2 liquidity. You that know, that
0: during Basel II?
1: Right. So you need a framework, just like in any part of investing, mm-hmm. something to kind of keep you honest and to keep you, this is what I really care about, this is what I don't. Do you ever call it a mental model? Uh, I don't, <laughs> but you could. Okay. You could, yes. Uh, so... For me, there, there's four things, just basic things you want to do in a bank. Okay. You want to see what it does. You want to see its price, you know, how much you're paying for it. Uh, you want to see its earnings power. And you want to see the risk it's taking for that earnings power. Okay. Now, I mean, that's a pretty broad framework. But, you know, if we're stepping through each, each step, um, you can look at, you know, for for what it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most important thing for a bank is it's it's taking in deposits and it's giving out loans. Right. Uh, the more... The higher the percentage of deposits as a percentage of your liabilities, the more of a real bank you are. Right?
0: Yeah, I, I like that you brought that up first, that it was first taking the deposits and then making the loans, because I think a lot of people focus too much on the asset side of the equation, whereas a lot of the value in a bank is created in, those, in the liabilities in those deposits.
1: Right, because if you don't have those deposits, right, you... You have to pay more right. for because a lot of people are paying nothing for a checking account so a lot you, of times.
0: Yeah, so you, you can you can go through those deposits and figure out what's non-interest bearing, right? So you can look at the the low interest bearing, maybe the savings accounts, and then compare that to brokered CDs and uh, and that kind of thing, which is typically higher cost for a bank.
1: Right, and then you can you can look at that as a percentage and see if oh are they taking on a lot of debt? How much are they paying for the debt? and All of that, and then on the asset side, similar similar ratio. You want to see your loans as a percentage of assets, mm-hmm. because if you're not putting out loans, then you're probably buying securities or doing something else with it, and that that can be good or bad. Uh, a lot of the things in this article, you know, point out there's n- it's very hard to say. This is not definitively one right bad, sir. You know, like bad debts generally bad, yeah. right? But but these kinds of things, you know, so for example, you could you could have a bank that is hot, you know close to 100% of its assets or loans. Mm-hmm. And that can be very good. They're, they're lending. They're doing what they want. Maybe they're dominating their market. and um, People are coming to them and they're getting good rates. Sure. Uh, maybe you have someone who has 60 70% of their assets or loans. Well, they might be saying, well, this is a frothy market and mm-hmm. we can't get good deals, uh, so we're going to do something else with the money and then come in afterwards. Okay. So uh, you could go either way, but you want to know, what your bank is doing, and then also, when you look at the loans, you want to drill in a little deeper, just like you do with the deposits. Sure. You want to look in and say, oh, well, what, what are they doing? Are they doing single commercial fam- loans? Yeah. yeah, are they doing single-family single family loans? How much real estate are they versus non-real estate? Do they do credit cards? What are they doing? How about the, the non-interest side of the equation? Uh, the, term- the non-interest income. Sure. Oh, oh, so, so yes, this, yes, on the, the income statement, So right? that would
0: be getting away from the yes. balance sheet now in terms of I'm, – I'm thinking in terms of so what does the bank do?
1: Yes. So, yes, on the – so th- those were balance sheet metrics. Now on the income statement, most important thing is the easiest way to differentiate banks is how much interest income do they have, how much non-interest income do they have. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the, the, in my article, the, the bank I used was Fifth Third Bank. Okay. Um, it's, I, I chose it because it's, it's a big bank. But it's not quite as big as the... It's too big to fail, but it's not so big that everyone's heard of it, right? No, and it's not... It's a tenth of the size, yeah, okay. of, of the Bank of Americas and Citigroups. Okay. And it's it's got... it's got I think it's got 12 states, 1,300-plus branches. So it's, it's a good size, and it sticks to its knitting. Uh-huh. So when I show the balance sheet, it's at least somewhat comprehensible. Right. You know, because yeah. you want it for explanatory purposes. But for them, they're about half and half. Yep. So, again... It can be good, it can be bad, right? Because if you're interest rate dependent, well, when interest rates fluctuate, mm-hmm. things are going to change. If you're not interest rate dependent, well, regulatory issues we saw with Dodd Frank, you know, you can get dinged. Right. Or you can get helped. Mm-hmm. I I found
0: generally, this is very, very broadly, it seems like a lot of the bigger banks have a similar split like that, a 50-50 split between interest and non-interest income. Um, You know, U.S. Bank Corp., for instance, has the very big merchant processing side of its business, which brings in a lot of reliable non-interest income. But I think as you get into the smaller banks, which I know know you like to dabble in the smaller banks, um, uh, you can see a much different split around the interest and non-interest income. And in particular, I think you generally will see a higher percentage of of interest income. Has Mm -hmm. that been your
1: experience? Uh, I have to get my spreadsheet out, but it makes makes sense, right? Um, Well, especially when you get to the really big folks who there's just, you know, like a J.P. Morgan or Mm -hmm. something. There's there's a lot of stuff. So, yeah, I think in general, your point, absolutely. Uh, so getting on to price now, the, I think when we
0: think about valuing, or, or when when a lot of investors think about valuing a stock, they're thinking first about price-to-earnings ratio. But I know that that's lower on your list in terms of how you're thinking
1: about banks. Sure. I think, you know, for most bank investors, the, the big kahuna is price-to-book. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you get a little deeper is, uh, you know, the deeper tracks, you know, well, I used to be price-to-book, now I'm price-to-tangible-book. Right. That, that's one step deeper. And, and the reason you'd use Tangible book is just to take out something like goodwill, right. which uh, you know you're kind of rewarding a bank for overpaying for acquisitions by I including goodwill. Say Bank of America <laughs> buying <laughs> Merrill Lynch.
0: The, the Merrill Lynch acquisition put a put a whole bunch of goodwill on Bank of America's balance sheet, and even going back further. Um, Bank of America under Ken Lewis did a lot of acquisitions, so ended up with a lot of that goodwill on its balance sheet. So
2: to play it, devil's advocate on, though, I mean the banks are supposed to evaluate the goodwill, and if it needs to take an impairment, they're supposed to do it yes, and, with, and yes, work yes, with yes. the accountant. So you shouldn't completely say goodwill is worth nothing.
0: But it's I not; mean, it's not an earning asset. Right? Say. Yeah. yeah. You,
2: can't, you can't say that this is something that we you can't lend
0: out goodwill. Right. I mean
1: and a liquidation. You're saying it concern, can right? change. Yeah. I mean theoretically your book value is protecting you in a liquidation type of scenario. Right. And goodwill. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's nice. When, when yep. you can share goodwill with people. Yeah. Share goodwill with the world. Right. And That's I'm not denigrating price to book. I like to look at both. Okay. Um, especially, especially when you're trying to convince yourself of it. You know, it's nice to be able to say, oh, you know, X bank is under book value. Right. It's like, oh, it's 10% above tangible book value. <laughs> it's not as uh, so. Do you? Do you say.
0: is there any sort of rule of thumb you use as far as this is when a bank is cheap, this is when a bank is expensive?
1: Sure. The, the industry, you know, jargon one is... Is you buy it half of book value, you sell it two times book value. Mm-hmm. Um, I think under anything under, well, it depends on when you're you're talking. Right in two thousand nine, you saw a lot under book value. Right. Uh, now it's it's less common. Um, so I think anything under one is always interesting. Okay. Um, anything over two, you start to you know. But again, it's it's some banks will always be that because they can then. Uh, you know, we talk about the next step, which is the earnings power. Uh, so a lot of times you see that, just like when you see, look at price-to-book and price-to-tangible-book. Right. When you see that difference, you want to see, oh, well, how did they get their goodwill? You know, like in Bank of America's case, you've got Merrill Lynch. Mm-hmm. Y- you want to understand the differences and why that is. Sure. Because you might you might see something where a tangible book is much higher, but you, you say, well, no, I believe in that goodwill. That's going to generate more income. And you can also see a differential between the price-to-book and, and the P.E. ratio mm-hmm. when, when – When you've got a very low P.E. ratio but a high price-to-book, well, that that bank is able to generate a lot with its book value. Um, So So on that note, uh, let's talk about earnings power. Sure. So with earnings power, you know, the the traditional one is uh, return on equity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And kind of the the standard there is, for me, it's 10%. uh, That feels, if you're above 10%, that's good. If you're you're below, you're 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 not so good. And again... With all of these it's sitting it's, in the corner with the dunce cap on right, exactly, and, and with all of these like like we said before, you know it totally depends on the market cycle and mm-hmm. a lot of it's a relative – well you want to look at a relative valuation, mm-hmm. but you also want to have some absolute standards because otherwise when, when the market gets super frothy and you just do relative differences, sure. you get in trouble right right um, so so absolutely return on equity uh, and then you, you want to look at other things like. Your net interest margin, mm-hmm. and you want to look at your efficiency ratio. So okay. efficiency ratio, right, uh, is basically how, how much your, how efficiently you're running your operations. Net in- interest margin, how how much you're making on your 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 deposits to loans. How spreads, big of a kind bite
0: of. the costs are on what you're actually earning. Right. So so uh, or on the like, efficient side, right. Yeah, like a like a golf game. The lower your efficiency ratio, the better.
1: Right. Right. Ideally, and like with golf, you know, if you're under 70, that's, that's pretty good, right? You know, uh, above 70, not as good. I mean, right. for, us, you know, for about, me, under about, 140. But, well but, over 100. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The golf know. analogy only goes yeah. so far. <laughs> um,
0: so, so when it comes to, well, actually, first let me ask you, do you, ever, do you ever use return on assets? Because I look at that sometimes as sort of an unlevered view on, on the earning power of the bank.
1: Yeah, if you looked at my scrap uh, word document before I published the article, that was one I wanted to include. But for simplicity, there you know there gotcha. there's so many metrics. But absolutely, uh, return on assets. So why you'd want to use return on assets versus well, again, you want to compare that to the return on equity. And why you'd want to use it is um, you, you want to see it regardless of of how much equity and how much leverage you're, you're employing. Okay. To to get that return on equity, right? So we've been
0: we've been talking about Bank of America a bit here. So how do you think about a bank that's currently showing lackluster earnings power, like Bank of America, but has potentially has the potential potentially has the potential to improve that over time, get more efficient, improve that efficiency ratio, uh, reinvigorate some of its some of its business lines? Do you consider something like that, or are you primarily looking for banks that are hitting on all cylinders right now?
1: Sure. Uh, I guess I'm. Uh, I like to talk uh, out of all three sides of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but that works uh, here. That's so,
0: usually what I'm doing, and then David's
1: going me on it. Right. So personally, uh, you know, in the current environment, um, normally I like to stick with the numbers on banks, okay. just because uh, if, you, if you've ever read through it, a bank's earnings, which I know you guys do, uh, or, or their um, you know their ten Ks and stuff, every bank sounds amazing. Right. You know, if they're doing badly, oh well, that was in the past or prior management or. Same management, but somehow they've learned their lesson and they're going to do better this market cycle and things are changing. It's so hard. So the numbers, I like to rely on the numbers primarily. Okay. But you, you mentioned Bank of America. Uh, I have a special case, right, with the, with the larger banks, which you've got that too-good-to-fail cushion, wh- wh- however much that helps, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, there's a smaller bank. You're, you're kind of on your own. Yeah. You don't, you know, you're, you're like a kid with no parents to go to to, to help. You know, Bank of America has got daddy government to, to kind of help out, yep. you know. Uh, so, so with them, and, and there you, you have to give more of a leap of faith because of the complexity, right? Okay. I mean, I am a Bank of America owner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, with a Bank of America or a Citigroup, I do buy that they will, on the, they will to get to mediocrity. Okay. Right? And me- mediocrity would be great for the two of them. Right. Uh, finishing
0: out, you, you have a final section on... On risks to earnings power, correct?
1: Right. Okay. So when we were when we were trying to think of uh, crazy banking terms, you threw out a tier one type of ratio, and I mean, there's like 15 tier one type of ratio, you know, mm-hmm. with tier one in it specifically, and then all the other ones that they're just very confusing. Yep. Um, you know, I, I talked in the article about the stress and the stress tests. The Fed looks at five different ones, and I mean, the first two sound exactly the same. I always have to go to the actual definition okay okay oh, that's a yeah, slight that's how it's different you know, but you, there's a very basic one you can you can kind of do, and it's it's the assets to equity mm-hmm. um, you just want to see uh, you know, so the easy way to think of it is when you 're buying a house, you put a twenty percent down payment, which is your equity right um,
0: unless this was two thousand and six
1: right, you put a one percent <laughs> down payment one percent <laughs> and then then your right your asset is your house yeah. so. Yeah. Your asset is 100, <laughs> and your, your 1% down payment is 1. So that's 100 to 1 And by 100, you leverage. mean
0: a million-dollar house.
1: Right, right, right. house, 1% down. Right. You put whatever 1% a <laughs> million. Um, put a dollar down. <laughs> <laughs> Less than 1%. But back then. But, so getting back to the 20%, right. you put 20% down, that's 5 to 1. Mm-hmm. Your, your house is worth um, 100,000. You're putting down 20,000. Uh, so with a bank, personally, I like to see 10 to 1. Okay. Um, you know, they can, they can take a little more leverage. Uh, when you get above 10 to 1, you start, you start worrying a bit. Um, now, you know, when you get above 10 to 1, that juices your, your return right, on your, asset your return and you'll see e- a great return on equity. Return on equity yeah. Right? And,
2: and, and an example of that is if you look at Wells Fargo compared to some of the Canadian or Australian banks, Wells Fargo has a return on assets around 1.5, the Canadian and Australian banks around 1, but then the return on equity is the same the foreign banks are using a little bit more leverage that's where it shows up
1: right an and so if you only look at return on equity you know the earnings mm-hmm. power mm-hmm. you' say, this is great yeah. well this is where this is that counteracting sure. part so if you if you're below 10 it could be an opportunity mm-hmm. or you could be some banks they're just so conservative you you, you want to kick them too conservative
0: to ever actually make money for their shareholders right
1: that's what you want to guard against mm-hmm. but in, in especially you know in a frothier market you it's nice when you see, oh seven 7 to 1, yep. and you can uh, – and, you know, same thing on the other side. If you see 15 to 1 and you see a great ROE, y- you worry so, about so it. So would
0: it be fair to say that maybe 8 to 12 would be sort of a sweet spot kind of range? think that I think that's reasonable I'd actually done I I agree with you 100% you're setting yourself up (laughs) yeah I I, I look at it I look at it flipped so so equity is a percentage of assets but same it's the same measure and I'd gone back and looked at and, and ranked the banks the big banks prior to the financial crisis to see how they stacked up on that measure and wouldn't you know it I mean it was basically exactly in line of who got in trouble Citigroup low equity to assets. Uh, Mer- uh, Merrill Lynch, low equity to assets. Lehman Brothers, low equity to assets. JP Morgan, higher equity to assets. Wells Fargo, even higher equity to assets. So yeah, I-, I think it's a measure that-, that works. It may not be what the regulators are-, are focusing on, but from an investor's perspective, I think it gives a lot of information.
1: Yeah, there's a similar thing one time, looked at Wells Fargo and Lehman before Lehman went out of business, um, you know, like five or 10 years beforehand. And return on equity-wise, Hangman was a little better uh-huh. than Wells Fargo. But then when you it looked at the leverage at 30 31, one. <laughs> right, right. And you see like Wells around, you know, whatever it was, 10 to 1 versus yeah. 30 to 1. Well, yeah. That's that's what happens. All right. Getting on to our game for today. This is our new
0: favorite game. It is 10 questions. We've got you here. You haven't seen any of these questions. All right. And so you're just going to have to be on your toes. I will start rapid you, responses, you yeah, Rapid responses. Okay. Yeah, rapid responses. Okay. You don't need to give us. dumbest s- thing that comes to my head. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what this show is all about, saying dumb things. So first question, favorite big bank stock? All
2: Can't
1: right. Think about it. For value, Citigroup. Okay.
2: <sighs> AIG in five years, good, bad, or mediocre underwriter?
1: Oh. Uh, well, I own AIG, so I'm hoping <laughs> mediocre to good underwriter. <laughs> <laughs> Best banking CEO. Uh, I'll say, well, not Jamie Dimon. Not Jamie Dimon. <laughs> just because Diamond. I think he's a little overrated. All right. I'll say that. Burger or hot dog? Ooh, both. <laughs> Can I do both? <laughs> I, like, I like the taste of a hot dog, and you don't get it as often, but a burger is going to satisfy your hunger. What you need to do is do, like, the cronut thing with
0: burgers and hot dogs. Ooh. I just, I just made you a billionaire Ooh. right there. Next question. If you could magically make one bank 20% cheaper, what would it be?
1: Oh, uh, probably a smaller bank. Uh, if, we're, if we're talking big banks, something like oh, could a be, Wells Fargo. No, could be smaller smaller banks. banks, you know, or U.S. Bank. Okay. Any of the good banks, right? Okay. You know, like a BB&T. I've been waiting for that one to fall, you know, under, say, 30 bucks a share for a long time now. Um, so, you know, fifth, third bank I, it I talked about. that 20%. About. Pretty much any of the banks, you know, like a PNC Bank's okay. doing better. Any of the better banks... Give me that 20%.
2: All right. We just talked about Jamie Dimon. Will he still be running J.P. Morgan in 2016?
0: Yes. Okay. Taylor Swift or Selena Gomez?
1: Uh, ooh. <laughs> I, I enjoy both of their works. So Matt and I both have this uh, this problem where we like pop music. Don't, don't
0: throw me under the bus here. Uh,
1: it's true. See, so Taylor Swift, she, she's she got, man, you know, like 22. Fantastic. We'll do that on infinite repeat. You're Selena Gomez has some. you Taylor, even though she gets annoying. <laughs> Breaking Bad or The Wire? The Wire. Best drama ever. <laughs> the most overrated bank. Oh. Uh, well, it was J.P. Morgan before the, um, the mm-hmm. whale situation. Yep. Um, I'll, I'll say a Goldman Sachs just because it's, it's such a master of the universe type of place. So I'll say that just for that. And plus, I, I generally don't invest in, in the investment banks just because... You know, the other you know, the, the hybrid ones, I at least can fool myself into looking at their regular operations right. and Black knowing box. what's going on. Yeah, I'll say that. Right.
2: Final question. When you see a ten percent dividend yield, are you excited or scared?
1: Uh, in the past, excited, now scared. Just okay. because you know, with knowledge comes scaredness. <laughs> exactly. Nice work. Second second go round of the ten
0: questions on you nailed it. Who was my predecessor? Morgan yesterday. Oh, okay. Yeah, Morgan. Morgan did pretty well, but uh, I don't. I, th- I think he would have tried to take a pass on the Taylor Swift Selena Gomez question. Oh yeah. And you you. That's my you wheelhouse. Didn't have take a
2: pass yesterday. He passed one of our
0: questions. Yeah, he actually did take a pass. Um, but you you not only answered that question but overthought it, which is fantastic. <laughs> right. We have an email address. That email address is wtmi. We love getting questions and comments um, and corrections, if you have them, to that email address. We have a question today from Max. Max writes, I have a very wonky question, but I cannot really reconcile this in my head. If the federal government stopped running a deficit and no longer issued T-bills, would that lower rates that private corporations pay for debt due to a reduced supply of bonds? That should spur the economy due to the cheap cost of capital for private industry to hire and grow. David, what do you think?
2: ha <laughs> question. Uh is it like do we think that would happen or what if it happened?
0: Okay. Well let, let, I'll, I'll take a shot at it and then you guys can tell me why why I'm off base here. Let's call it a, we'll call it a six hundred billion dollar deficit for starters. I think that kind of straddles the last deficit in, in the surplus in the or deficit? Deficit. He's asking for now. about a surplus, though. No, no, he's, uh, he's for now. He, he, right now, okay. in reality, in, in real life, David. Okay. Uh, so let's call it a $600 billion deficit. I think, first of all, we don't have to assume that the deficit goes away uh, for this scenario to play out because any any amount to which the deficit is reduced, the government would have a reduced need to issue bonds. But even if the deficit was reduced, I think it's important to point out that bond issuance wouldn't dry up because you constantly, it's sort of like a ladder uh, with the government bonds that are outstanding. So they're constantly maturing and so the government will still have to issue them. So what we're talking about is fewer bonds being issued, which could have that sort of effect where if there's appetite in the bond market for fixed income securities and there are insurers out there, there are hedge funds, there are PIMCOs of the world who need to buy fixed income. So that could happen. So, so we could see lower rates on, uh, on uh, corporate debt. But I was looking at some of the recent bond issuance. So Net- Nestle just sold $650 million of six-year bonds. Uh, that y- had a yield to maturity of about 2.2%. GE Capital sold a $1 billion of three-year bonds, basically at par, uh, 1.25%. And Prudential Financial sold $700 million 10 years with a yield to maturity of 3.56%. So my question is, even if you had that happen. Even if the, the cost of capital came down, the cost of debt came down a little bit for private industry, is that really going to further spur? When, when you see GE Capital getting three years at 1.25 percent, is a little bit cheaper really going to suddenly have everybody say, oh, now we
2: need to issue debt? But but could would, would private companies be paying a cheaper rate than the government? Is that even... Could that be possible?
0: It's it's I mean it's, it's happened for some governments. When I was uh, I was I was looking for some more information on I think it was the Prudential or maybe it was the Nestle uh, issuance uh, from a couple of years. There was an article on Bloomberg a couple of years back talking about how Nestle was paying a lower rate than France. Mm. So France was paying more for its debt than Nestle was. So could i in saying uh, the U.S. government?
1: Yeah. What, do, what So I, I guess I mean just to to. to 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 address the wonky question, right, we'll we'll use the jargon term, right? So he's basically talking about the opposite of the crowding out effect Mm -hmm. in econ, where the government competes with businesses uh, for debt or for, um, you know, uh, actually producing things. Uh, So he's saying, well, what happens if that shrinks? And maybe that would – I think it would be a more interesting question if interest rates weren't so low, as you Mm -hmm. said. And personally, one one thing, it never works how you draw it out in an econ – thing Um, but a lot of moving parts right but getting away from the econ into the actual brass tacks of running a business personally i mean the bigger danger to me is that interest rates are too low for for businesses to the the hurdle rate that they're using is is so can be so low that Mm -hmm. you take on stupid projects right Right. and you, you waste money i feel like there's a there's a golden mean level where you have to at least think about it before you you get some debt, you know, and you're worried about paying it back, and you... So, personally, yeah, maybe that happens, the, the negative crowding out. And I don't even want to think if the government didn't have any debt, because then you have other yeah. market effects. Well, and, I, I, I totally forgot the other,
0: the other side of the equation that I was thinking about is that, again, if we argue that the deficit totally goes away. So, there's the question of how much additional borrowing goes on, and then how does that borrowing flow through the rest of the economy... But you've just had $600 billion that's no longer being spent. And that's not money that's maybe being spent, that's held somewhere, that's been financed, and who knows if they're going to – that's money that's actually being spent by the government. So, so I think on balance, if, if you had that happen, if the government decided, okay, right now, today, we're going to balance the budget, uh, in order to try to lower rates for for corporate issuance and hope that that spurs the economy, I think you're going to have a much larger, much worse effect from the pulling out of the 600 billion dollars than you will have from the the spurring from lower rates. That's my take. fair, fair. All right, finishing off the day on the Twitter sphere,
2: David. What is the first tweet? First and only tweet is from Market Watch. It's an article they have five secret stocks you need to know about for 2014. I didn't even open the article, but <laughs> but the tweet caught my eye. And, <laughs> I I curious, <laughs> and I was curious. Now we want to know. I, have to find it. I was curious if Onan has any secret stocks on his radar. Not that you, you don't even have to like the stock. Just a company that you people don't talk about a lot that you find interesting. And if you don't have one, I'll put Matt on the spot.
1: Uh, I mean, I, I, I did a write-up a month or two ago on the Container Store. Now, it's not... Hidden, I guess certain parts of the country it is hidden because mm-hmm. um, it's 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 still expanding. Uh, it's a small cap. It's the, the container store. If you're not familiar with it, they do containers. You know, <laughs> of all different boxes. Uh, it's one of those mostly companies, made out of
0: wire. Mostly way more <laughs> expensive than wire. They need to be containers. Need to be
1: right. And that was my going in, um, but we've had the uh, the CEO, Kip Tyndall, come in, and uh, that was a few years ago before they were public. Mm-hmm. And I got more and more impressed, and when I finally dug into them. Um, I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of a this is one of those that you know you're, could be one of those David Gardner those rule, rule breakers type mm-hmm. of stuff. Well, when when I analyzed it, I was kind of like lukewarm. I bought a little position. Um, that was when it was in the low to mid thirties. What's the overall um, market cap right now? Do you know? It's
2: like 1.2 billion. Okay, I think, roughly.
1: Yeah. Under two billion. Yeah, that sounds right. I haven't because it, it it's fallen a little from when mm-hmm. I when I looked at it because now it's in the high you know mid to high twenties. Okay. So. Which is good for me because then I could add in, right. but that, that's something to start looking to. But the problem is with them is one of the big concerns is they have so much debt. Mm-hmm. Um, so they could be a small cap with a lot of debt can be very volatile. Yeah, sure. Um, so we could, I said before, in the 30s you could see better prices. that's ah, still possible today, but you know that's why I'm kind of buying slowly. But that's a hidden stock.
2: Cool. Did you have one, David? No, I didn't have one. You I didn't, didn't, have, have, one. You just you didn't read the article. I always do that. I never have the answers <laughs> yeah. to
1: anything.
0: All right. Well, on that note, we'll end the show there. You can find us on Twitter, at TMF Financials. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Swell, if you want to listen to the audio version of this. I'm Matt Kopenheffer. Yeah, this is still David Hansen. And over here, our special guest, Anand Chakovelo. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you tomorrow.
2: People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.